Welcome to Barrel Samples, where you can get a sample of the Canadian wine industry from the inside. Boom. Welcome back to Barrel Samples. This is Mitchell McCurdy. Drink Canadian wine. Mmm. 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 What's this we're pouring in our glasses right here? <laughs> all right. Well, um, today is all about Riesling. Ladies and gentlemen, Riesling, 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 and why? In Ontario, we have the potential to really make world-class Rieslings at multiple price points. Throughout um, this year, you're going to hear us come back to this Riesling um, topic and conversation. Today, we have five Rieslings on the table, and we're joined by our good friend, Jeff Moot of Divergence Wines. Jeff? Thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, really looking forward to it. It's our first guest, so I'm really excited to <laughs> dive in. I'm really excited to dive into and this opportunity. All those five wines we have on the table, you picked up at your local LCBO. Is that correct? Yeah. So we're we're, we're going to get to more information in a second, but first, more information about Jeff. Jeff, do you want to just introduce yourself uh, a little bit about what you do, what gives you the particular insight to participate in barrel samples, which brings you insider information. Yeah, sounds good. So um, I make a brand called Divergence Wines, and um, I only make Riesling in bubbly format as a sparkling wine. But um, in addition to my work for my own brand, I work with uh, Mitchell and Mark on a lot of projects for different clients and we make a fair bit of Riesling. And additionally, um, I've had the opportunity over the past years to taste a lot of Riesling as I got my education in wines from Niagara and around the world. Awesome. I'm so I'm really looking forward to it because I, I just, I don't think you love Riesling the same amount that I love Riesling. So this is going to be really good to sort of gain. I don't think most people love Riesling <laughs> the same amount that you love Riesling, but that's a good thing. I think it's a really interesting conversation. <laughs> I hope so. Because what we want to do is explore Riesling from a price point point of view, from a shopping point of view. We want to provide information for our listeners to um, make better selections, to better understand the wine that they're potentially going to have in the bottle. And we really want to talk about value um, both from a producer point of view or how do you sort of even um, branch out from what might be your regular Inniskill and Late Autumn Riesling, which we are tasting today as well. So um, I think where we're going to start is uh, a little bit about the wine. So thanks, Mitchell, for ruining that for me. But we... I'm um, always jumping the gun, a little too early. <laughs> we... Um, I just went, popped right into the LCBO picked um, um, seven or eight Rieslings and we sort of whittled them down to, to something that had a little bit of a theme or an easy way to have a conversation. And, and what we have are sort of really, really classic um, old producers here in Niagara, guys that have been doing Riesling and doing Riesling su successfully for a number of years. Um, we're having a little discussion of what our sort of historical experience was with each of these wines and what they look like today, as well as um, uh, price point and a little bit about uh, the technical aspects of these wines, as well as what we think they taste like. And really what we want to get to is, is uh, to just have a conversation of what the current situation of Riesling is. And I don't think it's going to end at the end of this podcast, but it um, this will certainly get us um, a little ways into that conversation. Okay, what when we talk about Riesling, what does the average consumer expect out of Riesling? 
I think most of them are thinking sweet. That's the biggest conversation I have on this side of the bar when I'm talking to consumers. The first question we always get is, oh, Riesling, how sweet is it? And I think the the next place people go if they don't think it's just sweet is that they don't know what they're going to expect. So maybe it's sweet, maybe it's not, but they don't know what they're getting in the bottle. I think that's going to be an important conversation is to sort of get to understanding of what the sweetness level is going to even be. We have a couple of bottles on the table today that have a, a descriptor of what the reasoning is. We don't know specifically what that's going to be based on the, the descriptor either. Um, and it, and, and some of them have nothing on it and, and those wines with nothing on it are, are disparate in style. Um, and so that's going to be an important conversation. And I think that's one of the weaknesses within uh, telling the story of the quality of Ontario's reasonings is that um, we can't necessarily um, provide that information to consumers before easily on the label. We don't have a, a clear way where every consumer is going to sort of understand it in a certain way. Um, back when I started drinking wines, you know, the LCBO used dry, off dry, um, uh, medium and medium sweet as pretty common descriptors right on the shelf and then they had sugar code which worked um, a little bit as well both of those things have sort of gone slightly away and the new consumer doesn't have that understanding so i think you could buy a riesling have it be dry and be completely disappointed because you're expecting sweet or buy a riesling have it be sweet and be completely disappointed because you expect it to be dry and i think uh, on that note we have one bottle on the table that says semi-dry and you mentioned the term off dry and I've heard the discussion and the question asked, are those two the same thing? And if they are, or whether they are or aren't, should they be, or should they be distinct things? Because I think there's a lot of Riesling products that live in that world between dry and sweet. And differentiating between those various levels is important to the consumer. Hmm. Interesting. And why does Ontario make good Riesling or why is it even yeah, grown so much here? Because it's common. Right. Yeah, I, I I think there are a whole bunch of um, rieslings, uh, reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Snuck it in there. <laughs> Sorry, apologies. Um, Riesling has several things going for it. It's very adaptable um, in in different terroirs, and we have um, such variable terroirs in Ontario. Um, and just starting to learn the expressions of each of the places that it grows has been really really exciting. But it. It has the potential to do well in different soil types. Can you explain what terroir means? Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. The terroir is that um, that undefined combination of all organic things associated with the production of a wine, um, and then sometimes more specifically the place that it's that it's grown. So, a combination of soil, the climate, the dirt, <laughs> combination of soil, climate, um, weather patterns from a particular vintage, um, water. How much the massage soil. the grapes? Less about the massaging. Oh. <laughs> you mean massage? Yeah. And um, in, within Niagara, just based on our overall um, macroclimate, our regular macroclimate, um, Riesling survives the winter well. Uh, we can get um, ripeness. And it also, even though it sometimes has susceptibility to disease, it often expresses really wonderfully even in our most challenging vintages. Maybe a little bit different, but definitely like really true Riesling. And not only can we get it to ripeness, but we can get it to so many different levels of ripeness because we're picking that earlier than some other 
um, things from a sugar content standpoint all the way to like ice wine. Riesling ice wine is a really delicious thing and is the latest, most sweet and most ripe you could pick Riesling at. And so it makes it all the way there. And then Jeff talked about his sparkling. It's not the only one who's using Riesling as a sparkling base. So like it fills a lot of the wine production goals that we have for white wine i'd say and there's like just so many different places it could be used in so when we're talking about yeah it could be dry it could be sweet it could be all of those things it could be bubbly and it can be really ripe it can be really um just fresh fruit and crisp like there's so many options within the spectrum of riesling and we do that all here in ontario yeah really flexible from a winemaking point of view good point uh, jeff any insight on what you felt offers because i mean you do make that sparkling riesling in your divergence portfolio um and i know you've you've sort of had um experience at um with riesling at, at various levels and from different places yeah i mean i think riesling is really rewarding to make uh, for all the reasons you mentioned it grows really well across niagara and expresses in uh, myriad ways but um i think the reason it exists only as a sparkling in my portfolio and then i'd have a hard time changing that is the perception by the consumer that it's um it's confusing or misunderstood and um, i think it's really important that people like yourself are trying to clarify some of that for people and get them on board yeah let's fix that let's bring people in let's go let's get that done all right wine number one uh cave springs 2021 riesling the details jeff Right, so this wine is 1695. Uh, it's 11% alcohol and 13 grams per liter of residual sugar, and is one of the bigger skews in the LCBO general list as far as Riesling's concerned. I believe it is now um, outsold by a, a portion by their own dry Riesling. And then you've got a few other key brands that are in that sort of top three, top five sellers. The floral honey on that nose, I could just leave my face in this glass for a while. So this is 2021, and um, I do some education in wine here in Ontario, and, and this normally makes like a, a presentation of what is classic Niagara at a value price point, and this just continues to prove it. Cave Springs is uh, such an amazing producer. They harvest these grapes from... A lot of great vineyards um, and then they tier and make different styles within their own brand itself but in their sort of widely available um, wines and skews it's absolutely delicious yeah and i don't know the exact percentage but i know a good portion of even this wine is estate fruit which is um, probably one of the reasons they're able to keep such good quality at consistently year in and year out and you guys had talked about descriptors on the label, and this one actually doesn't have a sweetness descriptor, but Jeff had found that information just by looking it up on the LCBO website. Yeah, so maybe that's a useful piece of information. So we have a lot of things that you can't find on a label, but uh, the LCBO uh, has some tools for us, whether it's on the shelf sticker next to the wine or if you go on their website or app. They will give you uh, residual sugar and alcohol content for every wine they list. Mm, that's helpful. You mentioned uh, because they use estate fruit, they have more control. 
Um, what do you mean by that as opposed to not estate fruit and yeah? Yeah, so estate fruit means vineyards that they farm or control themselves. So they're, uh, they're managing these vineyards all year and can, um, I guess, keep them in appropriate yields and uh, manage them the same way they do their top tier wines, which gives them control and the ability to keep that consistency even in the entry level of their portfolio. Okay. So what we have is a couple of major players that control about 50% of the total production here in Ontario, and the majority of that fruit from those larger grower, from those larger producers, is actually not owned by those producers themselves. It's owned by uh, growers, families, um, different companies have different sort of larger's. Some some of them are like groups of growers that have sort of assembled together to to save costs and be able to efficiently manage vineyards appropriately. Um, and then you have smaller producers that own a varying percentage of the fruit that they actually make wine from. And so, like, for example, here at Marinissen, we're about 30% or 40% estate fruit. Some of the medium-sized guys own a fair amount of their own production. And when you own your own production, you have the choices and the opportunities to um, recover your vineyard costs at bottle sale. Whereas if you're just a grower, and you have to make your vineyard 100% profitable and you don't have a, a secondary sort of um, place to, to grow. With the stuff that we do at Colab, um, except with, you know, with the exception of, um, of Liebling, who, has, who uses some of their own fruit, um, the majority of us are just working really closely with growers. So it's, it's, not, only, it's not that only estate fruit is great, um, it's that there can be a, a, a large variability and larger producers tend to um, not control the same percentage of fruit, but Cave Springs, one of those wineries that, that owns and, and grows a lot of their own fruit, which gives them the opportunity to manage that, that quality level. And Cave Springs is one of those producers that I would say is very holistic about the entire wine production from control. It, like, so they've just got a methodology they follow in the vineyard and take that all the way to their spontaneous ferments in their cellar. So that's part of their kind of ethos. So um, they're kind of putting that all together and the estate portion would be important in that sense. <coughs> all right. What do yes. we think about that palette? Oh, on Cave Springs? Yeah. Oh, balance is great. Yeah. I mean, it looks Good exactly Christmas. like Riesling. And, um, this Riesling's great from a balance point of view. From the, the Riesling. <laughs> Crispy. Um, from a, from a, what I prefer in Rieslings, this doesn't hit the, the numbers. It's 11 and, and 15, and those are sometimes things that I, I think um, had been done too much and didn't necessarily achieve um, the appropriate balance for my palate, except for producers like Cave Springs who just sort of knock it completely out of the park. Balance on this is excellent. This tastes like a dry white wine um, with a perfect represent, as, like as a really, really great representation of what Riesling can be. Agreed. I think that that sugar balance is the right. It doesn't seem sweet and the acid is not too much. Mm. And then, so we're moving on. To this yeah, gorgeous so blue go, label. <laughs> wine number in an two. Amber bottle. This amber bottled. Absolutely classic. Do we stop um, and talk about the five different colors class we have in front of us <laughs> for these bottles? <laughs> I mean, it might be worth it later, but everyone's yeah, trying sorry. to, you know, make focus. their No, no, apparently you're not trying to focus. Everyone's trying to make their case on the shelf. And we see lots of different caps, lots of different <laughs> 
bottle shapes and glass and styles. And I think they're just trying to stand out beside all the other Rieslings that are at the LCBO. Because honestly, I chose seven out of probably a possible 25 or 30 that were sort of in front of me all beside each other in the exact same section. Um, and I sort of gravitated to the bigger names, but I had picked um, a couple of the smaller ones that we didn't um, put into the tasting today. Um, the second wine that we're having, those in a Skillen's late autumn Riesling, the details, Jeff. So this is a non-vintage wine. It's 15.95, and the alcohol is 12%, and residual sugar, 21 grams per liter. So looking at those numbers, um, you can probably confirm. We would say this was probably fermented dry and, and back-sweetened. Yeah, I think that's the sort of only way you get to 12% and 20 grams per liter. What does back-sweetened mean? It means we had sugar after fermentation's over prior to bottling just to adjust. So some of this might be natural to the grape. Yeah. But um, so, but this is an alternative to stopping the fermentation with that amount of sugar remaining, and it would have been at a lower alcohol. This is just a little easier for them to manage on a large production. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, and that's it, it helps them achieve those sort of price points, and it, and it also helps them actually achieve more consistency on an annual basis from an expression point of view and that's something that this wine has always been i mean you know i i i used to make wine for this company both at inniskillen and then at uh, in my role at um niagara falls cellar their large production facility and and you know they don't really skimp on quality and, and what was sort of really rewarding for me was that riesling um, even at large volumes, even from other growers, even at that sort of level of production, we could always every year knock out a really, really consistent high value product from a like a price quality comparison. It's what sort of kept me um, so attracted to this great variety within Ontario, um, just because of its potential, its potential to sort of produce wines of, of great quality on an annual basis year in, year out with some level of simplicity or, or some level of efficiency to be able to produce wines that compete um, on a dollar to dollar value with wines from the rest of the world. The nose on this is actually pretty interesting too as well. And and then just for clarification, that cave spring would have been arrested. Um, so that residual sugar that we talked about, 13 grams is natural to the grapes. Yeah, in, in most cases they're, they're, they're arresting their ferments at their desired. Um, finished sugar levels at Cave Springs, as far as I understand. I don't I don't know that they would or wouldn't use a little bit if they thought they needed a, a touch-up, but most of that stuff might be from even holding Riesling juice back. You can actually add um, unfermented Riesling juice to finished wines in order to gain that, that sugar amount. Which, if you're doing that as, as a well. style, is called Seuss Reserve, and some people do put that on the label. Yeah, oh, Seuss Reserve, yeah, we should probably pull that uh, foreign affair in for, for the next conversation. It's been really, really highly rated. Um, and I haven't, I haven't tried the 22 vintage at least. So, uh, so Innescale and Laidon Riesling, they went to non-vintage most likely because it's easier for them to buy labels and they don't have to worry so much about um, sticking on individual vintages. It allows them, again, a little bit more efficiency, but um, I would sort of question it myself, <laughs> having an understanding of what the expressions are from a vintage to vintage point of view. There's a lot of differences that can be there, so maybe... It's a really good choice. It allows them to maintain a higher level of consistency on an annual basis, uh, um, even beyond what Riesling gives us as a great variety. Yeah, I mean, maybe even if the point of this product isn't to highlight vintage differences, um, I think that they're counting on the fact that the majority of consumers buying this wine are consuming it 
almost immediately after purchase so you don't have to worry about how old the bottle is which batch it came from like which vintage so to speak it was bottled in or based on because even though this is a non-vintage product there's a very good chance it's 100 percent of a single vintage or very close to it yeah and then so vqa just came out with that regulation not that long ago that you don't have to vintage date your wines where previous to that legislation everything was vintage dated um, and from a winemaker perspective, I'd say it definitely helps with a consistency standpoint for a product that we're not intending to be aged. Um, so something we we're going to move forward with that was our uh, Charmat style um, bubbly, which is just meant to be delicious and bubbly and fruit forward. And we're going to probably move to non-vintage there. And it's going to help us maintain some consistency between batches of that. Yeah, so, uh, you know, good or bad, that's why you might not see a vintage date on a label. And so, so consistent this wine is to me, the late autumn. I think what it does is bring value in the fact that every time you purchase this wine, it's going to taste very similar to the previous time that you purchased it. It's something that they've tied their hat to for a number of years. And um, I, I think maybe... If I'm going to, you know, obviously a little more sweetness than that first wine um, and, and definitely a little bit more simple. I don't know that that's always an issue because I don't know that all wine consumers want the most complex or most intense wine. Some want it to be a little bit more reserved or a little bit more out of the way or out of your face kind of thing. It's also a little bit softer on the palate where I find the crispness on that Cave Spring Riesling. This one just is a little softer to drink. Yeah, safe to say they're different products. Uh, they exist in a similar price range. So um, maybe we'll just continue in that theme and figure out yeah. what sh- what someone should be buying if they're buying Riesling in that uh, in that category. <laughs> yes, and so, it's, so far it's not seeming super clear. But uh, wine number three, 2021 Vineland Estates Winery Semi-Dry Riesling. Uh, Jeff? Yeah, so 2021 Vintage. Uh, 1695 price point uh it's nine percent alcohol and 24 grams per liter residual sugar but um in addition to the the numbers i'd just like to comment so this is one of the wines that is in a unique color of glass this is a bright green uh light colored glass which uh i believe brian has said they switched to because it was all they could get during uh supply chain issues during the pandemic but uh, I'm not sure if that's still an issue or they've stayed with this color because it's very distinct because it certainly stands out in a lineup. Yeah, with everything else a bit more of a dark, darker color, this one's that bright, eye-catching green. Yeah, I think it looks cool. It and gives this uh, kind of perception of freshness to it, and this is definitely <laughs> fresh. <laughs> yeah, so, so on, on, yeah, first getting into yeah. that wine, it's, uh, it's got probably the most dissolved gas and these are all supposed to be still wines but uh it's definitely fresh with some of that uh, co2 hanging around in the wine and probably the lowest ph of the three yeah so even though we've got the highest sugar level it doesn't come across as sweet um at all yeah and this one's labeled as semi-dry riesling and nine percent alcohol so i mean i think like one thing that we wouldn't have seen seven or eight years ago is more than two nine percent alcoholers on the shelf and and we have um two in this group and um a third that we have before but even when i was picking between the wines at the lcpo the, the number of 
uh, Rieslings that are coming in at 10% or, or lower that are on the shelf um, is going up. And I think that's really a great opportunity um, as people move to towards reducing the amount of um, alcohol that they're consuming. This is an opportunity to get sort of really, really tons of flavor. And even with the more sugar, having the less alcohol on the other side sometimes brings you a little bit better into balance because sugar or alcohol is actually perceived as sweetness or, or sugar um, and also a big component of the calories in wine. So if that's something that you're concerned about as well, lower alcohol gives you that opportunity. Um, and I think like the Featherstone is running a 9% and 20 grams per liter of residual sugar right now, the black sheep Riesling. And that's a, um, that's, that's another good opportunity. And, and what you're dealing with, uh, there, oftentimes, when you see something of lower alcohol, again, as we mentioned earlier, you, you can expect a little bit more residual sugar in that wine or, or sweetness. And so modest of you not to mention Fogelar. That's <laughs> kind of where you We're going to get there. We're going to get there. We're going to talk about the wines that, that I make and, and what my approach is um, when we bring back and in, in, jump into another sort of five or, or seven um, uh, Rieslings to, to discuss as we continue on this adventure to bring more people into this category because of the quality that exists. Um, and I can't, I can't, the thing is we were going to do a comparative with this and I wanted to have that argument. I just, I can't access Rieslings from the rest of the world at the quality levels that I want to. So it doesn't bring any value than to just look at these great Rieslings that we produce here in Ontario. And then go, yeah, I'd rather have the Niagara one. <laughs> Um, I did want to say it's a good time to talk about when we drink Riesling. Because <laughs> this one for me, especially at that 9%, kind of vibes with that breakfast wine um, in the morning. That freshness, that acidity really wakes up the palate. And you have this with something. Eggs. Doesn't matter, actually. Yeah. It's more about the wine. It's more about the wine. I, I, yeah, well, I mean, maybe that's like... That's a talking point for why some people find Riesling as a wine challenging because a wine like this is not, uh, at least for me, not not something I necessarily think of with a meal, especially a heavier meal later in the day, um, like most most dinners. But um, that's not to say you can't pair sweet Riesling with. Uh, yeah, see, I love sweet Riesling because of all that acidity. It, it actually pairs well on the table for me. Um, pork and then it, like if you're schnitzel or cutlet which would be better um but which is why just, you should go to kaiser house and get the kaiser riesling, with, kaiser their riesling mm -hmm. with their schnitzel absolutely amazing so like fried and, and anything that has sort of has like a ton of flavor pork is such a great um pair for this i also put it like sweeter rieslings on the table all the time at, at either that thanksgiving meal or that that traditional christmas dinner right the one with um, too many different flavors and 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 plates that are on the um, the table because it has the opportunity to sort of pair really well um, with with all of those. And this Vineland, wow, is it ever pushing the the freshness? There's a lot of acidity in this wine, and that's an another one of those points that we're talking about. You don't know um, sometimes when you're buying Riesling what that sweetness level is going to be, and I think uh, maybe even more importantly is is um, the acidity can sometimes in Riesling be bracing, honestly. Um, and for people that have any reflux issues or, or can get heartburn relatively quickly, normally there's like, yeah, I know I like the taste of Riesling. I just can't have it because it gives me heartburn immediately because it's too acidic. And, and it's something that we have to watch as producers, make sure that we're keeping um, those sort of numbers in line and achieving that balance. And um, Yeah, like I, I don't think this one's too much, 
but it's definitely on the higher end. Of the <laughs> I was going to say it's getting right and, up to that line. Uh, That's why it's like sort compared of, yeah. to uh, well, I was going to say their neighbors, but the next bench over at Cave Spring, uh, maybe not their uh, entry level wine that we tasted because there's some other grapes in that. But when we get to the uh, even to their estate wine later on in this lineup, um, Beamsville Bench versus Twenty Mile Bench, but a lot of it also comes down to the viticulture and how it's treated in the winery, uh, because I think yeah the whether or not there's um, skin contact or pressings in the wine and um, also malolactic fermentation. A lot of things can be done to soften acidity and this Vineland wine is not those things. This is all about freshness and um, I think it's a great expansion, expression of uh, Bench Riesling. Yeah, and, and, and you're right. That's an interesting point to talk about. Where these grapes grow, um, we're seeing different expressions um, in these wines, especially if we could sort of tie them in. And, and some of these aren't labeled actually... Two of the next two wines that we're going to have are, are labeled a little bit more specifically. Yeah, maybe um, I was jumping ahead and we should have had that conversation around some of the more specific yeah, wines. Yeah, well, I, think I mean, it's a perfect to lead into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, but we know a little bit about both that um, first Cave Springs and, and this Vineland is they're, they're not really sourcing fruit from too many places other than um, right around them. And um, the higher you get up on the escarpment, the further you get um, from the lake, the shorter your growing season is. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that sort of go into what ripeness you're at. But as Mitch was um, mentioning earlier, sometimes just the winery decision, that that harvest decision, when you're actually picking those grapes for the first time, when you're picking them for the last time, can definitely change from winery to winery. And it certainly changes what the sugar level is when it comes into your winery and what the acid level is of those grapes. Um, even outside of the vintage, because I know within the changing vintages, you can definitely adjust your harvest date pretty comfortably to maintain a, a, a relatively consistent expression of Riesling. Where, as there's other great varieties in the province that you don't necessarily get that uh, that leniency with. You're sort of rushed into Pinot Noir. Harvest. Yeah, yeah. There, there's the <laughs> one. Pinot Grigio. <laughs> <laughs> and this the is one. the sweetest of those three. And it doesn't really taste the most like sugar, it. but maybe not the sweetest. Sorry, the yes. late autumn is the definitely most a sweeter grams wine. Grams per liter yeah. of sugar listed on the LCBO website, but definitely doesn't seem as sweet and finds that balance point a bit better yeah 100 percent the most tart out of the three as well <laughs> so that's what i think that lcbo had talked about that sugar scale being a little out of date because it didn't factor in enough acidity um into the question um I, but i also find that acidity from a ta point of view if you're just re using that number can't necessarily express everything that that reasoning is going to be sometimes it's ph as well so I think it's a really, really fair conversation. I think the more that we talk about it and sort of drill down into what those specific, what that specific descriptor has to be for a consumer to be a little more aware of what they're having. And maybe it's more of an overall feeling with the wine as opposed to anything else. And I don't know, you can get a group of wineries together and all use the same nomenclature and then maybe hope to in five or seven years affect a small amount of change and 10 or 15 years have some real impact on how people understand these wines. But um, moving on to Cave Springs 2020 Riesling Estate, VQA Beamsville Bench, estate grown. All of those statements mean something from a label point of view. We'll talk about VQA labeling in some future episodes just so that everyone knows what actually means what. But uh, Jeff, with the details... Yep, so you gave a few of the important ones that we're maybe going to talk about later. Uh, this is going up the price scale a bit at $21.95. It's 12.5% alcohol and seven or sorry, 7 grams per liter residual sugar. 
So we're definitely drier than the first three wines. What do you think? And this one does have a sweetness descriptor on the back that says dry. It says yeah. dry on the back. Okay. And d sweetness descriptors actually mean something within VQA. It's just sometimes they don't match up completely to uh, perfectly to style overall. But this wine's dry. You sense maybe a touch of that sugar, maybe. But mostly this is like dry white wine, really nice weight, and uh, and um, a really sort of powerful <laughs> expression. It's yeah, wonderful. I think we're, we're clearly in a different grouping here. This is a different category than those first few wines, uh, which are all maybe looking for the same consumer, even though they don't taste the same. Uh, this is clearly uh, a more elevated expression of the grape. Really yeah, exciting. The intensity on this wine is pretty serious. And with that 12 and a half alcohol and that little bit of residual sugar, we could be pretty certain that they picked this Riesling um, fairly late in it, the scheme of when Riesling is picked. Yeah, which is anywhere from the middle of September to the end of October. Yep. yep. <laughs> um, it's got a sticker on there, Wine Enthusiast 91, top 100 best buy of 2023. And I, I really don't think they're wrong. This is just this is just pure and classic and a wonderful expression. And it, like in a, a wine that's sort of similarly styled, maybe at a slightly higher price point, the Charles Baker Pecone Vineyard Riesling Vine Mountain Ridge um, was recently chosen as WSET's um, uh, typical for uh, yeah it was used as an exam wine uh not just for niagara i think it was oh, in a grouping Riesling. of rieslings or something like that yeah and so that's i mean that's that's amazing to sort of be selected i think it just further exemplifies the importance of riesling both within niagara but within the the entire world's sort of vision of of what wines we make here um you know in, on chardonnay pinot noir riesling obviously Cafranc. um but those are the varieties that, that are sort of being focused on more uh, along with Gamay Noir um, and uh, expressions from single areas, single vineyards, or at least um, vineyards in proximity. So if you want to speak a little to K-Springs estate, and I know like they have higher um, tiers of, of Riesling as well. Yeah, so they have uh, bottlings in their lineup that represent specific blocks or areas within their vineyard holdings. Um, their CSV is probably their sort of flagship Riesling, uh, CSV standing for Cave Spring Vineyard, and uh, Adam Steps, which is just a different area in the same vineyard, uh, right under the escarpment. Really interesting expression, but um, this estate bottling, I think, is probably the least um, specific, but also the most classic, maybe, in terms of varietal expression, and that's true for a lot of the things Cave Spring puts their estate label on. I mean, and then so we talk about why Riesling and Niagara. I think this one would answer the question pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. And it gets to that other side. And again, these aren't expressions that I work on a lot within my own brand because they're not the expressions of Riesling that I sort of love. Um, I think because they're very, very difficult to get to. So I don't control a lot of uh, the grapes that I have. And until recently, I haven't had vineyard sites that I really loved at higher levels of ripeness where the acidity comes down that you then turn into dry wines. Um, you know, the Grimsby Hillside, both uh, in a sweet expression and in a dry expression is, is absolutely, it's awesome. Uh, I like it a lot. Um, I used to produce dry from uh, Hank Vineyard and had a little bit of success um, with that wine in terms of, um, in terms of loving that style. It takes a really, really specific vineyard um, and some really specific management in order to achieve, I think, effective um, wines like wines of 
big quality that we can release dry in in Riesling, and and this is one of them. Holy cow, uh, very good. Yeah, that Grimsby Hillside pick was um, we had long stopped processing <laughs> reds or whites, sorry, and we were heavy into the reds. I had to clean all the equipment just to get that <laughs> into the press. Luckily, we were doing whole cluster um, yeah, on and, that one. And, and we ran some of it to dryness and we rested some. And, and just this past vintage, I had, um, had the, the pleasure, I guess, of managing <laughs> Pecone Vineyard from a Riesling point of view. I think, honestly, that's all I could say. Just having the ability to work that closely with that fruit for the entire year and sort of see the differences that that um, vineyard produces. And now we have, what, like six different expressions of that Riesling in the cellar, and all of them are very exciting. And one of them, the biggest volume is completely dry from the latest pick. is just um, um, a really awesome year in 23 to sort of make Rieslings and I like the energy coming behind it that we're sort of hearing about. There's so many Rieslings on um, on uh, Rock and Grapes just recent. Uh, um, what's that song school called? What's that called? The Sommelier Factory. The Sommelier Factory. Yeah. 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 yeah so uh, Bruce Walner's uh, place. He's uh, working with James Outway on uh, Rock and Grapes is James's podcast, and um, they did a top twenty-five uh, list of wines from Ontario. And on that 25, like Vogelar hit there. Um, and this last wine that we're having was number three, I, I think. believe number three. It was up there. It was one of the last few. Yep. Again with the freshness. Um, Boy, that knows. <laughs> so this is... So burying the lead. That's uh, <laughs> yeah. Vineland Estates, Elevation, uh, Riesling, St. Urban Vineyard. 2022. So we, we've changed. Uh, this is our most recent vintage that's vintage. on the table. Yeah. Uh, Cave Springs was 2020 um for their estate in 2021 for their other one uh the previous vine then that we had the semi-dry 2021 very very different vintages 22 there's a little bit of um winter damage associated with it and a much sunnier vintage than what 21 was um but i had the 21 elevation in the fall um it wasn't far off of this wine i think it, it was just a little less fruity so what's what are the details on this jeff so this is twenty two ninety five. So the highest price Riesling on the table. Although I believe we just looked it up and it's on uh, three dollars <laughs> off at the LCBO. So get there before it's yeah. gone. <laughs> yeah, get in there this February and pick it up. It's a great value at that price point. It's a great value at the regular price point. Mm-hmm. Um, it's nine and a half percent alcohol and thirty seven grams per liter of sugar. So the highest residual sugar in the lineup. But I think. Uh, Maybe this is the comparison I was starting to make earlier between that Cave Spring uh, Beamsville Bench expression and the Vineland um, St. Urban uh, expression, which is a few kilometers away, uh, but mostly just really different um, management and ways to approach the variety. Yeah, I'm having a hard time just not, I'm, you know, I'm trying to expectorate the majority of these wines so that um, I'm not slurring by the end of the podcast, but this one is just so juicy and delicious. I love this one. So stylistically, this is kind of um, a style that I, I love to see expressed effectively. And compared to their semi-dry Riesling, um, it, it reaches a really, really better balance point um, overall, I think. Even though it has more sweetness in it, it and has less acidity, I find it in better balance overall. The alcohol is very similar. Um, it's juicy. It's like biting into fresh fruit is kind of what it does for me when there's, you hit that balance there's, point. There's a lot of jam in those uh, grapes. And, and I don't know, did you did you go 
through the vineyard specific on this. This is our only single vineyard that was in the, the group. It's just its price point is so good that um, that it, it makes it into this group. So this this wine could really be uh, much higher in, in price. This is from their St. Urban Vineyard um, VQA Niagara Escarpment, which they use, but they can use a more specific. They could, but I think that's a, that's a choice they've made, the, the Niagara Escarpment Regional Appalachian, uh, specifically because maybe... Uh, this is definitely a wine of the escarpment. This mm-hmm. this tastes like that. Yeah. It, oh, oh, so good. <laughs> there's so much complexity in here. It hits all of the, um, there's ripe characteristics. There's like lime and lime rind in this, a little bit of grapefruit. I find it really floral. Um, also brings some peach in there as well. And I absolutely love the balance. I think the acid is in, um, a great spot it, it's high enough but it doesn't get as close to the edge as say their semi-dry riesling did for me from a from a, a taste point of view and um i just think if you looked at this on the shelf though you, you you might not know that this wine tastes like it does compared to the immensely different 2020 riesling estate from cave springs even though they're priced similarly and they're going to be located in the lcbo at a very very um, close spot, but how do we as wineries tell <clears throat> consumers what they should expect in that bottle? Well, and this one also doesn't have that sweetness descriptor on the back, so it would be you've got to look this one up on that website if you want more information. But again, that story doesn't quite tell you what you're going to get in this glass. Yeah, I mean the the low alcohol is a cue. Um, yeah, you don't typically see nine percent rieslings that aren't uh, with some residual sugar. Um, but yeah, I mean this this palette seems to find most of the volume from the sugar i think uh compared to say the cave spring that that builds a lot of width and uh texture in other ways yeah and i but i you know i'd kind of disagree on that because it's really hard to have that low alcohol have sugar feel that in place at the level that it is 37 without having other textural components of the wine that actually support it so um there's maybe less there, there's less tannin in that cave springs and it replaces that with alcohol and dryness and i feel like there's there's structurally um a more intense wine in the elevation um from vineland in the mid palate and and what sometimes happens with these wines and you know when i have sweet rieslings and they don't have that structure and that texture they taste out of balance to me and the wines that i make with fogel are the, the goal is to be sort of as imbalanced as possible and, and kind of pushing that that sweetness edge as opposed to the acid edge or I, I kind of come down a little bit on that and and i work with 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 tan, well like you're aware I, I work with the tannin structure with um either heavy pressing so my grape skins or uh, an extended sort of cold soak to pull those tannins out of the grapes themselves because i know that when i have that much ridges or sugar i need to find other components to balance just besides acid the vineland semi-dry feels like it's just acid feels like there's some stuff on the palate that's missing but the elevation for me really brings weight like if they dried this wine out it would be too acidic i agree with that yeah and i agree with your assessment that it's balanced um and i think that that acid that they have found balance with it will give it a lot of aging potential in fact i think we're drinking it far too young really good point yeah i've had the fortune of drinking uh this this riesling from vineland uh with some some time in the cellar and it's always rewarding and 
um, I think even more pleasurable than drinking it young. Mm-hmm. I will also say it, it, it seems to benefit with time in glass. Like it's just getting better the more swirling oh. and oxygen it gets in there, uh, um, which is <coughs> what we were talking about, freshness. It's pretty uh, pretty sealed up tight in there. Yeah, he bottles his wine so with a lot of SO2 and a lot of uh, CO2, which really lends to the opportunity for aging on these wines, which is something we didn't even talk about is how sort of like wonderful Rieslings are after 10 or 15 years in the Well, cellar. can I jump in there? I had, um, so when I went to Brock, I took the uh, Wines of the World class, which Christopher Waters was teaching and was an absolute pleasure to learn from him. But he pulled a 2004 German Riesling out of his cellar and we had tasted this, it would have been like 2014, so nine, nine years in bottle which is something me just starting into the wine world would never have been able to experience because it wouldn't have had a wine that old. You can't buy wines that old at the LCBO um, for Riesling. And it just was like an incredible texture experience. The flavor was really interesting. And then, yeah, that lively acid still living up that long in bottle. It's good. Yeah, and and, um, I have a couple of old good Rieslings in the cellar maybe we'll, we'll try them next week not in a, a podcast but we'll, we'll we'll recount them um uh just sort of see because I, I don't know tasting these I'm like yeah I'd like I'd love to leave lay the Cave Springs estate down I'd love to lay the 21 Riesling down um and definitely some bottle age on this elevation could improve it I think the other side of that conversation is that they're purposefully picking this at um lower ripeness in the fall uh, so that they can preserve acidity uh, and achieve balance with 9% and, and 37 grams. To me, that's like a pick at about, what, 19 bricks, maybe? Whereas Cave Springs is most likely a pick at, at closer to 22. Most likely. <laughs> yeah, and I think they both find balance, um, yeah. but just very different uh, expressions. Yeah. And yeah. and to break that down for our non-wine listeners, um, bricks would be a about 10 grams per liter of sugar is equal to one bricks, and it's just a... a calculation we use in the winery um to measure ripeness levels of fruit at harvest um but now that we've tasted all these wines i mean like i think i'm probably gonna go to the lcbo and grab a couple of those um because they're pretty serious and pretty delicious wow um but yeah so get in the comments let us know if you like jeff on our podcast (laughs) and if you like or if you don't also say if you don't yeah we're (laughs) Um, so we're probably going to do uh, short, short, long is kind of what we're feeling for this style and, and continue. So we'll have some interesting things to talk about. And then once in a while, we'll just dive right in and get some LCBO picks or some good, long um, winded comparison tastings in here for you mm-hmm. guys to listen to and get a bit more understanding of what it's like for a winemaker to taste wine. And hopefully this episode will give you some insight into your buying decisions and how they can influence the wine you're going to get and that you get some Riesling in your shelves and in your house <laughs> that's going to just knock your socks off. <laughs> and in you. Get some Riesling. Get some you. Riesling in you. <laughs> Hashtag get Drink some Riesling. <laughs> Links to all the wines that we uh, tasted today are going to be in the description if you want to check those out. And again, um, do everything you can to support this podcast. Like Tell everybody about it because we want listeners drinking more Riesling. Yeah, word of mouth is very beneficial to us. And like not only word of mouth for the podcast, but then the wines that you try from the podcast, you should go tell your friends that you learned about it on the podcast and that you like the wine. That's, that's <laughs> got to be cut. That's got to stay in there. That was beautiful. I nailed that. Drink it in, wine.